Well, this is part three of a series that the Lord really laid upon my heart um, to take you through. Uh, as Adrian said earlier, you know, normally we teach verse by verse, and uh, sometimes it is a shame when we move away from that because it's just lovely to immerse ourselves in God's Word and let the Word just teach us. Um, and yet there's been things here that I hope you've already found helpful. This morning, we're really going to lift the lid on this and start to get into it. We've looked already at this whole issue, kind of this great mystery that we're kind of uncovering gradually. And we started with just talking about life's greatest question. Uh, and we said, really, it's got to be, does God exist? You know, of all the questions that anybody can ask about any topic, subject, or whatever else, you know, there's lots of great candidates for this topic or for this, this, this accolade as the greatest question. But surely, does God exist? It changes everything. It changes your outlook on life, your opinion about everything. So it's such an important issue. And we've gone through and we've presented a number. We went through this about some, somewhere in the region of about 20 different compelling arguments. And, and they're by no means the, the, the sum total. There's many more that we could have looked at. And we just, just, just cherry picked a few from the surface, um, to show that for a rational thinking human being, you can't really come to any other conclusion than that the God of the Bible is really, truly who he said he is, and that the Bible really is God's word given to mankind. But as I said, I want to put all that to one side, because what we're going on to look at is something that is utterly, utterly breathtaking. And It's not in any way an exaggeration to say that I've personally been overwhelmed by what I want to try and take you through this morning. And this morning is just the beginning of what we're going to be looking at in this, this subject we're going through. As we said already, um, great proofs, great evidences. But I want to take you on to something. And I'll just read to you this um, introduction that we've used a couple of times now, um, just to get you thinking about this topic. So the question is, you know, what if there was a mystery that spanned the ages? A mystery birthed in a Middle Eastern desert over 3,000 years ago that is now determining the events of our day. And what if I told you that this mystery involves global leaders, heads of state, presidents, prime ministers, many others, all who have been working to a predetermined timetable, many of whom were completely oblivious. In fact, most of them were unaware that they were part of this great mystery. And what if I could show you that this mystery has decided world events down to the very year, the month, and even the day of their occurring? And what if I showed you that everything that has ever been and everything that ever will be are connected to and are part of this mystery? And again, what if I showed you that you don't need faith to believe this? Because it is so obvious, it's so clear, as we will go through, hopefully you'll start to understand why I've made that statement. Last week we got onto this issue and asked the question, what if there was a people brought into existence as a sign, as a witness to the existence of God and as a vessel to bring about his purposes? And we said that you know, if such a people really were to exist, you know, what would they be like? You know, we, we conclude they'd have to be different, they'd stand out. If God really had chosen one group of people out of all the earth through whom to reveal himself to this world, they would be different. And of course, we concluded last week when we looked in detail of the mystery of Israel. Paul uses that express, expression, the mystery of Israel. And it is a phenomenal subject. So we looked in detail last time 
at this mystery. And we said that Moses' final words to the nation just before he died, recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, he lays out the, their journeying, um, all that had happened, their journeying through the wilderness and so on. But then he told them exactly what would happen to them in the centuries and the ages to come. He told them that their land would be invaded by their enemies and that they'd be scattered from one end of the earth to the other. But he also told them that in the last days they'd be regathered to their land. And we've said already, this is this mystery of Israel. There's no other people group on earth that could be compared to them. You know, we talked a little bit last time about the prophetic history of the nation. All recorded thousands of years in advance, looking at the diaspora and then the regathering of the nation. Just that on its own is great evidence and compelling reason to put your trust in God. But then we also talked about the appointed times. And we looked at the way this, uh, the, the certain dates and certain uh, times just reoccur certain events on certain dates in the Jewish calendar that have real significance. And through history, just somehow events have happened to fall on these particular dates that are very special to the Jews. We looked at the mystery that's hidden within the feasts of Israel. And that's a huge subject on its own. But Paul tells us that those, those feasts are just a shadow of things to come. And they actually all point to Jesus Christ. And then we looked at the incredible intricacy that we see in the feasts and the timing of the feasts being parallel with the, the labor cycle of a pregnant woman. And everything that goes on in the development of the life of that child before it's born, it falls on the dates of the feasts of Israel. Breathtaking as you start to look at these things. Well, I want to just give you another couple, um, and then we're going to really get into this. One of them is the mystery of the 490 years. Now, some of you may be familiar with this, but I just want to just have it in here for the record. And we turn to Matthew 18 for this. In Matthew 18, we read, Then came Peter to him, to Jesus, and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Until seven times? Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Now, was Peter's question an attempt just to impress Jesus? Was he showing off in front of the other disciples? Some think that he was. It wasn't simply just a reactionary comment. You know, Peter was prone to do that, not knowing what to say, so he just opened his mouth and says something. Or could it have been a considered question? You know, people are very quick to dismiss Peter uh, and to cast him aside as just somebody who's just, just shoot from the hip all the time and doesn't really think uh, before he speaks. But actually, you know, we understand that Peter really did love the word of God. He knew scripture. And again, if you look at what he said, the question is very specific. He says, how often shall I forgive my, uh, my brother sin against me and I forgive him until Seven times. The word in the in the Greek here is hios, and it literally means a specific point in time. Peter's asking, shall I forgive until seven times? Now to you and I that may not mean a huge amount, but when we turn back to the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, we find that this phrase seven times occurs, and it occurs in connection with the Jubilee. We read in Leviticus 25, verse 8, Thou shalt number seven Sabbath of years unto thee seven times seven years. 
And the space of the seventh Sabbath of years shall be unto thee forty-nine years, and thou shalt cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement, shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land and all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. And you shall return every man unto his possession. And you shall return every man unto his family. It's really significant. We're going to come back to this idea of the jubilee in a short while. But a really, really important precedent that was being laid down here. So again, Leviticus 25 lays down this law of the Jubilee. There's seven times seven years, or 49 years, and the 50th year then is this year of liberty being proclaimed, the trumpet blast to announce it, the chauffeur, the ram's horn. And all debts were to be cancelled and slaves to be set free. And Peter, of course, as a good Jew, would know this very well. So his question to Jesus actually makes perfect sense. He's saying, should I forgive until the seven times, until the Jubilee? For a Jew, that's a good question to ask. But it's interesting when we look at Jesus' response, because Jesus doesn't say, yeah, that's a great thing, do that. Jesus says unto him, I say not unto the until seven times, or until the Jubilee, but until 70 times seven. Now, some commentators you'll look at will argue that we should forgive 490 times. So that means if somebody wrongs you 491 times, and then, then you've got a legitimate reason to bop them on the nose. Now, that's not what the Bible's saying, obviously. Most commentators conclude that Jesus was simply saying, we should forgive lots. But I hope that as a congregation, you're becoming aware that every detail in the Bible is there by deliberate supernatural design. That nothing is there by random chance. There aren't just these expressions that were casually said that just, you know, don't really mean all that much. We can't read all that much into them. No, the Bible says what it means and means what it says. God was very intentional in the words that have been recorded for us. So there's an idea here that's could before, you know, we should forgive lots. And of course that's that's not a bad thing, you know, and so on, but that's not what Jesus said. By the way, the modern versions will have all sorts of renditions of this. Uh, the RSV says, I do not stand to the uh, seven times, but seventy times seven. In other words, that's a definitive number. When you've forgiven that many times, that's it. And again, of course that's that's not what scripture is saying here. You know, the NASB, uh, Jesus said unto I do not say up to seven times, but up to. Again, it's, you know, up to that, but no more. You know, there's a limit to how much we forgive someone. That's, that's again not what scripture is saying. The NIV and New Century Version both say, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Quite sure where they get that from. It's not in the, the Greek manuscripts. It's very clear what's there, and that's just a bad, bad translation. Yeah, it's 413 less than Jesus actually said. Um, so <laughs> the message, not that I would ever encourage you to look at it, but if you do, you'll find that that says, try 70 times 7, give it a go, see how you get on with it. You know, if it's too hard, then mad, don't worry. Now, again, this is not what scripture says. Be very careful uh, with these things. Now what Jesus actually said was very specific. He said, until 70 times 7. So what's significant about that? And can we find that in scripture? Well, yes, we can. We need to go back to the book of Daniel. And Jesus actually quotes from this uh, passage, Daniel chapter 9, in Matthew 24, when he's speaking about his return. And it leads us to a very astonishing discovery regarding this mystery of the 490. Daniel's people had returned home by the time we get to chapter 9 of Daniel. If you do a study of the book, you can work the chronology out quite well. Um, and Daniel sets his heart to pray specifically for his people 
and for the city of Jerusalem. It's one of the most impassioned prayers in scripture and he ends up almost quoting Solomon's prayer in 1 Chronicles 6, 36-39, almost verbatim, just pleading with the Lord. Again, confessing the sins of the people in the first 15 verses and then going on to intercede for the city. But midway through his prayer, he's interrupted, not by a knock at the door, but by a visit from the angel Gabriel. I'm sure Daniel wasn't expecting this, but Gabriel then gives a very detailed four-verse prophecy that lays out the future for the Jewish people. Now, we haven't got time, unfortunately, to go through the entire prophecy. As fascinating as it is, it really is quite breathtaking. But we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, that 490 or 70 times 7 years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Oh, that's a pretty incredible prophecy. It's it's the, the entire future of the Jewish people. It's saying this next period of 490 years that they're to experience will bring everything to an end. And it's it's a really staggering prophecy. The next three verses break down the detail of this prophecy. And if we were to map it out on the timeline, verse 25 tells us that there was a command to restore and build Jerusalem. That was given by uh, King Artaxerxes, recorded in Nehemiah chapter 2. And that was given in 445 BC. And we're told that from the going forth of that command, there would be a period of time. It works out 69 weeks of years, or 483 years. actually works out, if you look at the number of days, 173,880 days. And it says that from the going forth of the command until the Messiah comes, there will be this period of time. Well, this is one of the reasons in Luke 19, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, Jesus weeps over the city. And it says, if you'd have known in this thy day the things that belong to your peace, he says, but now they're hid from your eyes. And Jesus effectively pronounces national blindness on Israel because they missed, as Jesus put it in his own words, the day of their visitation. They should have known the day the Messiah was coming, the day he was presenting himself, the only day in Jesus' entire ministry that he allowed himself to be worshipped as the Messiah. Every other time people try to worship him, he said, see you tell no man. And he went and walked away, he hid himself from the crowd. He wouldn't allow people to tell of what he'd done and who he was. But on one day, which turned out to be Palm Sunday, Jesus goes and arranges the whole event. He gets this donkey, he rides into Jerusalem, intentionally fulfilling the scriptures. And yes, exactly 173,880 days from that command that was given way back in 445 BC, the Messiah arrives. It's one of the most incredible prophecies in the entire Bible. Verse 26 then deals with things that would take place after 483 years, but before the final seven years. In other words, there's a gap. There's an interval in between this, of this whole 490-year period. And one of the things that were to take place during that period of time was that the Messiah would be cut off. He was crucified. Just a few days later, in fact, just uh, Jesus was taken on the 10th day, that was Palm Sunday. And on the 14th day, on the Passover, Jesus was killed. He was crucified for us. He became our Passover And many other things that were to take place 
There'll be desolation determined for the Jews, which we saw, of course, with the temple being destroyed in AD 70. And last week we spoke a lot about what happened following that point and the scattering of the Jews around the earth. But ultimately they'd be regathered. And then verse 27 deals with the, the final week, the 70th week, or the final seven years. It's a period of time that we often refer to as the tribulation. Now, the first period of time, that, that 69 weeks of years, that 483 years, was specifically all about Israel. That interval in the middle is what we now refer to as the church age. It's while Israel had been blinded, waiting for the fullness of the Gentiles to come in, as Paul says in Romans chapter 11. And then we have this final seven-year period following the rapture of the church, when the church had taken out, God's attention will turn back to the nation. And that final seven years of this 490 years will be uh, concluded. The temple is going to be rebuilt at some point, certainly by the beginning of this seven-year period. Halfway through that, just a rerun of history uh, from what happened with Antiochus Epiphanes back in about 167 BC. Antichrist is going to come. He's going to break this covenant, this agreement with Israel. And this abomination is going to be put in the most holy place. And you read about that in Revelation chapter 13 and so on. And then, whilst Israel are in their darkest hour, they will cry out to their Messiah. They will look upon him who they've pierced. They will mourn. They will cry out and Jesus will return. And the purpose of the second coming, or one of the key purposes, is not only to reclaim the land, but also to save and rescue the people in response to their crying out for their Messiah. This is the Jews that will cry out. What an incredible prophecy spanning from the, the, the point that Daniel is receiving that all the way through to the end of this age. And then we go on to the millennial kingdom. So if you think again in connection with the question that Peter asked and the response that Jesus gives, it's quite simply this. Jesus said, I sent unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven, until the end of the 490 years. He is really, don't just forgive until the Jubilee, but forgive until the kingdom comes. It's a staggering statement, but of course consistent with everything we know in scripture of what Jesus says about how we should forgive. We're not under the law, so we don't look to others in that way. We are under grace, and that's how we should show and, 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 and be toward others. But this mystery of the 490 is bigger than just this because what we find is if we start with Abraham and we go from that time that he was called, he was 75 years old and he's called to move to the land of what we know as today Canaan or Israel as it becomes. From that point to the time of the Exodus, if we look at the years that Abraham is in favor with God because there was a period of 15 years with the whole Ishmael thing where as we often do, best endeavors, trying to help God out. Sometimes we think God needs just a little bit of a push or, you know, he's not quite understanding our situation, so we'll see if we can help him a bit. Always ends in disaster. Well, that situation, of course, ended with the, the problem of Ishmael, which has been a problem to the Jewish people to this day. But if you look at that and you do the maths, the whole period of time works out to 490 years. That's quite interesting, isn't it? And then if you take it from the time of the Exodus... So following on chronologically to the time of the temple, and we're given the details in scripture. We know when the, the temple was begun and it took seven years to complete it. it was 601 years in total 
from that time. But there was a period of time during that, during the times of the judges, that Israel were under servitude from the other nations when they were out of favor with God because of their disobedience. So you take off those years, we add them up, the dates are given in scripture, 111 years, and you're left with 490 years. Amazing. And then, if we go from that point, from the temple to that Arctic, Arctic, uh, edict of Arctic Xerxes that we just mentioned, we, we've got the dates again, and we can look at this, we can verify this historically. We take out the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, and we end up with a period of 490 years. And then the one that I've just shown you from that decree that was given to rebuild Jerusalem and so on, up until Jesus came, was a period of 483 years, up until Palm Sunday. And then that whole period of, for Israel is put on hold as their, their blindness is pronounced upon them as a nation as the Lord is bringing in the Gentiles. And this church interval we're now in, we don't know how long it's going to last, but looking at the things that are going on around us, we don't think it's going to last much longer. We think that the Lord is soon going to be back to take his people home to him. And then finally there'll be that last seven-year period. And so once again, that period of 490 years. I mean, Israel really, truly are God's timepiece. The whole of history is based around the dealings of God with this nation. It really is staggering. And of course, we read in Isaiah 46, God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God says he can tell the end from the beginning, so why are we even surprised that we find these things? And yet they are staggering to the human mind, that history has been so intricately woven together by a power, by a brain, by a mind that is so far beyond anything that humanity could accomplish. So, the greatest mystery. Why all this background? We've just taken two weeks plus this time this morning, And why so much about Israel? Well, because this mystery that we're going to be talking about begins with Israel. And we've already seen that in Moses' last words to the nation, he told them all that was going to happen in the centuries to come. And he foretold their future. And just, just think for a second, because that shouldn't be possible, should it? It really shouldn't be possible to tell the intricate course of human events, even days ahead of time. I mean, we, we struggle to get the weather right. I mean, normally it's going to rain and we can be pretty sure of that. But, you know, to even to, to forecast the weather, and we've got all sorts of tools now to help us do that, we get that wrong. But to deal with the, the course of human events, even weeks or months ahead of time, is impossible. But we're dealing with something that is dealing with human events thousands of years before they take place. It shouldn't happen. Again, from a human perspective. And looking into the, the, the future course of a nation... I mean, it's absurd even to suggest it could happen, and yet it's happened. Because all that Moses said has come true with incredible detail and precision. But with all the things we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, there's one thing we've not yet really spoken of, and that is the Jubilee Mysteries. And this is what we're going to start to unravel And again, this is truly overwhelming. And that word overwhelming doesn't really do justice to what we're going to look at. Again, we've already mentioned, we talked a little while ago from Leviticus, this law of Jubilee every 50 years, that those who had lost their home or land would have it restored to them. And your separation from that which was yours would be ended. 
And to mark the Jubilee, as I said a moment ago, there'd be that blowing of the chauffeur, the ram's horn, or a trumpet to announce the coming of the year of Jubilee. Again, who was the Jubilee given to? It was given to Israel. This is why we've had to go through just laying this foundation, looking at the background of the nation and all that God has done with them. What does the Jubilee signify? It's the returning to your possession. It's regaining that which you had lost. For 2,000 years, Israel had wandered the world without a homeland and without a possession of their own. But as we've seen, prophesied by Moses, they would return home. And that would be a sign that we are in the end times, the final days of this era. And again, as the, although totally unprecedented, as we mentioned a moment ago, Israel have returned to their land. We saw it in 1948. A sign that the ancient Jubilee mystery is being played out on a, on a cosmic scale. Worldwide scale, touching kings and prime ministers and presidents and world leaders alike. I want to begin with the prophecy of the stranger. This prophecy given by Moses speaks of one who would come to the land when it was still a barren wilderness and would bear testimony to that fact. Moses and the children of Israel were promised a land, if you remember, flowing with milk and honey. But it was because of their disobedience that the land would become literally a barren wilderness. But remember that the mystery of the Jubilee has to do with restoration and restoring that which was lost. And the prophecy that Moses gave spoke of a stranger who would come from the ends of the earth, from a a faraway land. And when he was to enter the land, he will bear witness of its barrenness, its devastation and its desolation. The Hebrew word that speaks of the stranger is the word nakri. And it's singular, it implies an individual. It's not just a, a generic statement. It speaks of an individual who would come at some point in the future of the nation. Now we know that Israel were dispersed from their land in AD 70 and finally forced out completely in 132 by Emperor Hadrian. Jerusalem, we know, was plowed over. But it took many years for the land to become a complete desolation as scripture says it was going to be. And the prophecy specific uh, specifies the time that this prophecy, this prophecy of the stranger would be fulfilled. The Hebrew word again is acharon, which literally means a coming generation, but specifically the latter, or in the latter times. So we've got not just the idea that there's a stranger, specific individual coming, but we know that this is going to occur in the latter times for the nation. According to Moses, the stranger would come to the land before another event would take place. That event being the regathering of the people to the land. So this stranger would have to come prior to, as we now know, 1948. The prophecy itself is in Deuteronomy 29. and verse 22 we read this. So that the generation to come of your children shall rise up after you, and the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say when they see the plagues of that land, the sickness which the Lord has laid upon it, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown, not beareth, nor any grass growing therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adamar and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. That's this prophecy that we have. When did this 
happen. Well, it turns out it was in the 19th century. In fact, it was in the year 1867. A stranger who just so happens to came from America. There was a steamship voyage that was to stop at various places around the world, a sightseeing tour, and it ended up landing in Israel. And specifically, the final stop on this tour was going to be the city of Jerusalem. And this individual just happened to be a journalist, and he kept a notebook of his journey. The stranger was none other than Mark Twain. Some of you may have heard of him. He's often referred to as the father of American literature. Wrote uh, the, was the author of Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer and those novels and so on. But I want to make it very clear, he, he wasn't in any way intending on helping God out or fulfilling prophecy. In fact, this quote I found on the internet of him, he said, uh, talking of the Bible, he said it's full of interest. It has noble poetry in it and some clever fables, some blood-drenched history, some good morals and a wealth of obscenity and upwards of a thousand lies. I make it very clear, this individual had no intention of fulfilling biblical prophecy. But upon arriving in the land, this is what he wrote. Rags, wretchedness, poverty and dirt, lepers, cripples and the blind. To see the number of maimed and malformed and diseased humanity that throng the holy places. According to Moses, the stranger would say that the land is brimstone and salt. And so Twain would bear witness to that. And saying, all desolate and unpeopled. Miles of desolate country, the far-reaching desolation, the waste of a limitless desolation. According to, again, the prophecy, the stranger would say that all the land is a burning waste, or as another translation puts it, your land has become a scorching desert. And Twain would write this, it is a scorching and repulsive solitude. Such roasting heat, such oppressive solitude, and such dismal desolation cannot surely exist elsewhere on earth. Nowhere in all the waste around was there a foot of shade, and we were scorching to death. Again, that prophecy in Deuteronomy says the land will become devoid of anyone to sow it. And Mark Twain, in his journal, wrote this, All its land is unsown. One may ride ten miles hereabouts and not see ten human beings. These unpeopled deserts, these rusty mounds of barrenness, that never, never, never do shake the glare from them or from their harsh outlines. There is not a solitary village throughout its whole extent, not for 30 miles in either direction, he said. Again, Moses prophesied that the land would not bring forth produce. He said, nor does it bear. The Hebrew word is the Samek, which is used to specifically refer to sprouting. And Twain again bears witness to the land's inability to sprout vegetables, writing, The valleys are unsightly deserts, fringed with a feeble vegetation, a desert paved with loose stones, void of vegetation, glaring in the fierce sun, this blistering, naked, treeless land. The prophecy again states as a stranger who comes will specifically speak of grass or rather the absence of it, that no grass grows in it, speaking of the land. And again, one translation puts it, not even a blade of grass. And Twain, in his notebook, almost quotes scripture word for word here. He says, no sprig of grass is visible. 
As already mentioned, Mark Twain was a skeptic. He certainly had no intention of fulfilling this prophecy that had been given some three and a half thousand years before. Yet, in addition to these things, as we've already noted, Scripture foretells that in the day of the stranger it will be said, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land to bring upon all the curses that are written in this book. So, of all the things that Twain said, some of these things that follow are some of the most incredible, because he said this, Palestine sits in sackcloth and ashes. Over it broods the spell of a curse. Palestine is desolate and unlovely, and why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? So somebody who didn't really even believe in God, speaking of deity cursing the land, just as Moses said the stranger would declare. Again, Mark Twain's words ended up appearing in articles all over America and around the world. It became a witness to his generation and to subsequent generations, and just thus fulfilling this prophecy with incredible detail. And again, the timing of all of this was right on cue. It was when the land was at its most desolate, and these events would then be the prophetic key to set the stage for the redemption of the land and for the exiles to return, for the children of Israel to come back to their land. But there was another prophecy to be fulfilled before they could return. And just before Israel's captivity I was just sorry, just after the, the captivity, um, or just before the captivity ended in Babylon, rather, Zechariah saw a vision. He saw a vision of a man with a measuring line. In Zechariah chapter 2, we read this, verse 1 and 2. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width, what is its height, its length. And just as a builder would use a measuring line as he's planning to build to prepare the foundation, so God did this with Israel. Not just in Nehemiah's day, but in recent times also. <clears throat> if I was to ask you what happens when you are about to take possession of a piece of land or a property, I'm sure you're very familiar, those that have bought houses, you know that the survey has got to be completed. It's got to agree the boundaries and so on of the land. There's a quote from Jonathan Kahn here. He says this, the, the land must be defined or redefined, its length, its breadth, its borders, its parameters. And if there's no existing survey, then a survey must be made. The land must be defined and mapped out, measured, and so the measuring line. So in the days of Zechariah, when the Jewish people were returning to the land, the man with the measuring line comes to the city in a vision. And his appearance is a sign of what is yet to take place. It happened in the ancient world. So too, it would happen again in the modern. The ancient sign would again manifest in the world. In modern times, the man with the measuring line would again come to Jerusalem and his appearance would be a sign of what was yet to come. The name of this particular man was Charles Warren. Again, some of you may have heard of him, of Jack the Ripper fame. He was the former head of the Metropolitan Police and he also served as an officer, as a general in the British Army and a member of the Royal Engineers. And the skills that he learned in that particular role proved invaluable. For He was later recruited by the Palestine Exploration Fund, and he was sent to the land of Israel on a mission to survey and map out Jerusalem and to measure the Holy City. And again, remember that the land at that time was under the control of the Ottoman Turks, who were suspicious of his activities. He was watched the entire time he was there, 
Nevertheless, Warren's work, this is just quoting from one source, Warren's work would constitute the first extensive excavation of biblical Jerusalem, the first extensive measuring of the biblical foundations of the Temple Mount and of the city itself. It would usher in a new age of biblical archaeology. Again, remember the Jubilee. That which was lost must be restored. The boundaries of the land given by God to Moses, the inheritance of the children of Israel had long since been forgotten, but now they were being rediscovered. His mission was not just to survey Jerusalem as it was then, but as it once was. To measure its ancient parameters, the boundaries of ancient Jerusalem, the biblical city, to locate its ancient walls and borders, to uncover its foundations. Again, to restore that which had been lost. In order to do that, he had to dig through centuries of ruins and earth to get to the city's biblical foundations. Again, Jonathan Kahn states the following. He says, In the Jubilee, the connection between the land and its original owner is restored. And so the consequences of Warren's work were to restore and strengthen the long-lost connection of the Jewish people to the land. And with every restored connection, the idea that the Jewish people, after almost 2,000 years, might somehow return to their homeland, began to move one more step out of the realm of fantasy. It started to become something they could believe in, something they could dream about as a reality to come. After nearly 2,000 years of exile, the man with the measuring line reappeared in Jerusalem as a sign that God was about to bring about a restoration. A measuring line is used when one is about to build something. So the reappearance of the man with the measuring line in the person of Charles Warren was a sign that God was about to act, to move again, to build something, to rebuild that which once was and had fallen, the nation of Israel. And when else to use a measuring line? Well, Jonathan Kahn quotes and says, there is about to be, when there is about to be a transference of land. So when the man with the measuring line appeared in Jerusalem, it was a sign that the land was going to be transferred back to the original owner. The land was being prepared for the return. And so it was in ancient times when the prophet Zechariah revealed the meaning of the measuring line. A measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem and the Lord again will comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Anyone know when it was that Warren came to Jerusalem? Would you be surprised to find out it was 1867? It was the exact same year that Mark Twain arrived in the land. And so the stranger from Deuteronomy 29 and the man with the measuring line from Zechariah 2, both themselves heralds of Israel's return to the land, were in the land at the same time. In fact, they would dwell in the walls of the ancient city at the same time. In fact, the same month, it was actually the same week, the same days. And they would actually dwell together in the same lodging place, in the very same building. This is staggering, the more you start to look and think about these things. Some of you may be aware that for the Jews around the earth, every Sabbath day, From ancient times, they gather together in their synagogues, they open up scrolls, and they read a particular portion of Scripture. So every Sabbath day, there's a specific portion of Scripture that's read. It's called the parasha. And it was decreed a long, long time ago. John 
Jonathan Kahn poses the question, says, could it be possible that some of these appointed words were appointed not only to be spoken on those days, but of and to those days, to speak of events that would take place in modern times? I mean, bear in mind that the person that put this together, I mean, it was outside of, although it was scripture, the putting together of this list of what was to be read, I mean, surely there wasn't divine influence in that, was there? Well, Mark Twain's pilgrimage had begun in June 1867. In the summer months, he would travel the cities of Europe, and he got to the Holy Land in about mid-September time. He actually entered the gates of Jerusalem on September the 23rd. It was on the 27th of September, after an excursion in the desert, that he returned to the Holy City, to Jerusalem, for the culmination of his pilgrimage. And so September the 28th would constitute his last full day and night in Jerusalem. So the following day, he would leave the city, head back to the shore, and then start his journey home to America. Well, it just so happens that September the 28th fell on a Saturday. That was a Sabbath, of course, in that year. And so on the stranger's last full day in Jerusalem, and the last Sabbath of the stranger's journey in the land, there was, of course, as it always was, an appointed scripture. Anyone want to guess what it might have been? Well, it was the very scripture that spoke of him coming in Deuteronomy 29. So that generation to come of your children shall rise up after you, and the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say, when they see the plagues of that land and the sickness which the Lord has laid upon it, and that the whole land thereof is brimstone and sold and a burning, that it is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth there, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he goes on. This is incredible. The very day, the last day he's there, as a witness to all of these things, that scripture was the scripture that for ages past had been appointed to be read that day. And it wasn't just in Jerusalem, it was around the world. In every synagogue, they were reading and declaring from San Francisco to Siberia, all around the world, just reciting and chanting this prophecy of the stranger who would one day come to the land on the very day he was in the land. Fulfilling the very words of the prophecy given by Moses. And again, I'm pretty sure that Mark Twain had absolutely no idea of his role in this. But there's more. We know that God is a God who hears his people. But no doubt for Israel at times it may have seen that God didn't hear them. As they cried out for mercy so frequently. Cried out repeatedly for God to restore them. There was a particular prayer that Israel, the Jews pray even to this day. Whenever they get together, whenever they meet, every Sabbath and other times as well. This is what they pray. Have mercy Lord our God, on Jerusalem, your city, and on Zion, the resting place of your glory, rebuild Jerusalem, the city of holiness, speedily in our days, bring us up into it and gladden us in its rebuilding, and let us eat from its fruit and be satisfied with its goodness and bless you upon it in holiness and purity. That's what the Jews repeatedly for thousands of years now, or just 2,000 years, have been praying and crying out to God, the same prayer repeated. But no doubt for them, it seems as if God wasn't hearing their prayers. But as we said, the stranger would be a sign that their exile was about to end, that God had heard their prayers. Interestingly, the stranger's real name was not Mark Twain. That was his pen name, as it were. At birth, he was given the name 
Samuel. I'm sure you're familiar that Samuel is a Hebrew name. So he was given a name that came from the very land that he would one day visit and be a witness regarding these things. But of course, as you know, with Hebrew names, they all have meanings. They contain a message. I'm sure you remember from Scripture that Samuel means God has heard. Because God had heard the prayers of his people. And he will fulfill his promises for Jerusalem and the promised land. And again, those prayers that he had prayed, or they had prayed, he was soon going to answer. And those prayers were that he would restore the land, that he would bring them back, that he would have mercy, and he would be merciful to them. Interestingly also, the stranger's last name was not Twain, it was Clemens. Clemens also has a meaning, holds a mystery and a message. Clemens means merciful. It's the quality of showing mercy. So the stranger was very literally a sign. Samuel, God has heard their prayers. Clemens was about to show them mercy. And again, it's doubtful that Mark Twain ever realized the part that he played in the mystery. Jonathan Kahn said this, In the Jubilee, the connection between the land and its owner is restored. Up until then, the original owner has no right concerning the land. He can't even walk on it without permission of the one now occupying it. But when the Jubilee comes, the owner can again walk on his land, farm it, build on it, and dwell in it. The barriers are removed. The owner's connection to the land and the land's connection to the owner is reaffirmed and restored. When the Jewish people lost their homeland and their holy city in the first century, as we looked at it, we know from history, the Romans tried to erase every connection between the land of Israel and the people of Israel. They remade Jerusalem into a pagan city and they called it Alia Capitolona. And to further eradicate the connection of the Jewish people from their homeland, they renamed the land itself of Israel as Palestina meaning the land of the Philistines, Israel's ancient enemies. There's like a slight against Israel. That's where the name Palestine comes from. There was never a Palestinian people. That's a media invention. It's a myth. But that erasing was so successful for for most of the 2,000 years that the land of Israel would simply be known as Palestine. And the Jews were even banned from setting foot in their holy city. Again, Jonathan Carl says, so the owner was cut off from his land and the other powers who would follow the Romans in occupying the land and the city would do similarly, obscuring the connection of the land to its people. But when the Jubilee comes, the connection between the owner and the land is restored and that which was lost is regained. Charles Warren, again, the man with the measuring line, didn't only measure Jerusalem. In order to map out ancient Jerusalem, he had to literally dig it up. And so he came with you know, shovels and pickaxes as well as just the surveying equipment. He uncovered the walls of the ancient city and the ancient gates and the chambers. He uncovered what was hidden under the Temple Mount. But there was something else. Something that he didn't plan on. Something that he would stumble on that would end up being his most dramatic discovery. And it happened that one day he was crawling through one of Jerusalem's rock chambers with his assistant, and he stumbled upon a shaft. That shaft would lead to the discovery of an ancient city, a city that had been 
hidden in the dust for 2,000 years. Now, for ages, everyone thought that the biblical city of Jerusalem was inside the walls that we see today. And some of it was, but the original city of Jerusalem, the biblical core, was outside the gates we know today. And Warren found it. He literally uncovered the core of the biblical city of Jerusalem that had lain hidden for nearly 2,000 years. It's the city of David, of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Again, a city that had been lost for some 2,000 years. Again, Jonathan Kahn says this, In the mystery of the Jubilee, what has to take place? And he answers and says, That which is lost must be found. And the land must be restored to its original owner. So Jerusalem, that was lost, was found again. And this marked the beginning of the restoration of Jerusalem to the Jewish people. And according to the mystery of the Jubilee, the original connection between the owner and the land, biblical Jerusalem, and the Jewish people, was renewed. The shaft that Warren discovered linked up with Jerusalem's ancient water system. And this is significant. Why? Well, if you remember from Scripture, it was through Jerusalem's ancient water system that King David's soldiers first entered Jerusalem, and thus by which the nation first came into possession of the city. Warren's discovery thus renewed that ancient connection. Again, when did this happen? When was ancient Jerusalem discovered? In the year 1867, the year of Jubilee. Khan again says, So Jerusalem is hidden in the earth for 2,000 years, and of all the years to begin emerging... It happens in 1867. The same year, everything else happens. Remember the prophecy. The stranger comes to the land, and then what happens? The return, the regathering. The land was being readied, and the discovery was in the autumn of 1867. Why is that significant? Because it was in the autumn of 1867 that the stranger came to the land and to the city and dwelt in the same place as Warren. In fact, after 2,000 years of lying in the dust, ancient Jerusalem was discovered less than 30 days after the coming of the stranger. It would ultimately be a sign, a foreshadowing that Jerusalem would again be restored and become a living city filled with the children of Israel. But if you remember, the land was under the rule of others. So how was that all going to happen? How would we go from the place where Israel was ruled by foreign powers to a place where Israel would eventually be given their own land? These connections are being restored. All these things taking place are signs that God is moving. Well, it would happen through another mystery. A mystery that would ultimately change the course of world history. And in two weeks' time, we're going to pick up and show you what it was. Let's bow our hearts. Father... We thank you that these things truly show that you are in complete control of history, of people's lives, of our future. That, Lord, you're a faithful God who truly keeps your promises to your people. Father, stir our hearts, we pray, with these things. Lord, give us an increased confidence and faith and love for your word and a boldness to tell this world in which we live of the truth of these things, that they would be stirred, 
That they would look to these things, that their eyes would be open to the truth. Lord, you say yourself that your word is truth. So we thank you for these things this morning. We thank you for these revelations. Stir our hearts, we pray, that we may continue to grow in knowledge and in grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.